Morning all. Are we just a little bit cool this morning? Yes. yes. So the opening chant is quite a lively one, so we're going to try and use it to generate some warmth. Brotherly, sisterly and physical warmth, okay? You've got it on your sheet. I'll, uh, we'll have a rehearsal through first and then we'll use it as our chalice lighting chant. Rise up, O flame, by thy light glowing. That's the first half. Rise up, O flame, by thy light glowing. Do that again. Rise up, O flame, by thy light glowing. And a deep breath. Show to us beauty, vision and joy. Show to us beauty, vision and joy. Beauty and joy are happy things. (laughs) And I love that almost demanding insistence. Show to us. Okay, let's go for that all the way through a few times to make sure we're happy with it. Rise up, O flame, by thy light glowing. Show to us beauty, vision and joy. And again. Rise up, O flame, by thy light glowing. Show to us beauty, vision and joy. And guess what? You can start... And then you can go second, and it'll be rise up, oh flame, rise up, oh flame, and I will be standing here manically like this, okay? <laughs> Every now and then, watch so that you sing something with the beat rather than off the beat, and we'll be okay. This is still a rehearsal. All right, one, no, three times through. One, two, three. Rise up, oh flame. Two, three. Rise up, oh flame. Rise up, oh flame. Good, huh? Shall we go for it? We'll actually sing it then. (laughs) Good. I will invite you, please, to stand, if you are happy and able to do so. And if not, if you can't be bothered, that's fine. Don't worry. Um, I'll ask Stephen to come, be ready to light the flame. This is our chalice lighting chant. Okay? Four times through, please, this time. With gusto and joy. One, two, three. Rise up, O flame, rise up, O flame, rise up, O flame, rise up, in light flowing, show to us beauty, vision and joy. Rise up, O flame, by thy light flowing, show to us beauty. Joy, 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 joy,
Welcome and blessed be. Please sit down. But maybe not for very long. <laughs> I'd like to tell you all a little story, which is a game as well. Uh, for those who choose to, you don't have to be young, or middle young, or less young. Um, but I'll explain that when I get to it. Let's set the scene first. Once upon a time, a farmer was looking over her land to make sure that everything was where it should be and that all was well. And then she found a bird's egg tucked under a bush where it shouldn't ought to be. It was still warm when she picked it up, so she knew that there was a tiny life inside it. So she thought the best thing to do would be pop it into the nest of one of the free-range hens that roamed about her farm. A week later, the egg cracked open. Yeah. And a tiny bird tottered to its feet. The farmer was relieved and delighted to know that she had saved this life so nearly lost. But she was also quite quickly aware that this was not a baby chicken. It was a baby eagle. How was that going to play out? From now on, if I say an eagerly word, eagerly, please stand up if you choose to play. If I say a chickeny word, please sit down. Okay? All right? Eagle? Chicken. You don't all have to play. It's okay. You're choosing it, not me. And it'll warm you up. So. Well, okay, the farmer had spotted this problem, but, but neither the eaglet nor the chickens seemed bothered. Um, they didn't seem to know there was any difference. It was as if they were all just happy being cousins together. So the young eagle grew up amongst the brood of <laughs> chicks, learning to do what they did, thinking that he was the same as them. He scratched the earth for scraps to eat. He cackled and he clucked. He watched eagerly. <laughs> as the chickens... I did like that one. As the chickens, no, say, thrashed their wings and wobbled just a few feet in the air. But he assumed that he wouldn't be able to fly very well or very far, so he didn't even try. But one day, he saw a magnificent bird, far above in the cloudless sky. It was gliding in graceful majesty amongst the powerful wind currents, with scarcely a beat of its long, golden wings. <laughs> He's coming to spend a weekend with me in my congregation. I think we're in trouble. <laughs> That's okay, you play the game how you choose to. <laughs> As he looked up in awe, he wondered aloud, Who is that? <coughs> Why? That's the eagle. <laughs> the king of the birds, said a nearby chicken. <laughs> the eagle <laughs> belongs to the sky. We belong to the earth. We're just chickens. Oh, said the eaglet <laughs> and his head dropped on his shoulders but as his head dropped he took a proper look at his feet and noticed that they were very different from the feet of all the chickens around him 
as his head dropped, he noticed the shadow of his beak and noticed that its outline was longer and sharper and somewhat more curved than their beaks. As his head dropped, his eye was caught by the length and the golden plumage of his wings. Never properly outstretched or unfurled before, because it had never occurred to the young eagle that they weren't the same shruggy, stumpy, short white wings that all the others had. (laughs) I wonder, he wondered to himself, and gingerly extended his two wings for the first time, accidentally knocking over two nearby chickens. (laughs) And even as the eaglet... I am having to wait for you now. (laughs) Just stretched his wings out. A gust of breeze caught them and lifted him clear off the ground, over the pecking heads of the chickens, carrying him up and over the fence at the edge of the field. Without thinking, the young eagle gave a slow but powerful beat of his wings and found himself soaring higher and higher above the ground, away from the farm and the clucking chickens. They were still scratching and pecking at the ground while he was far above, riding those currents. All my life, thought the eaglet, I thought I was a chicken. (laughs) But now I realise that I never was. Now I'm ready to be the eagle I've always truly been. Cheers. Ta-da, please sit down unless you are going. In which case, please go happily. Can we slow? <laughs> yes, you can. our steering group panel whatever it's called these days leadership group meeting yesterday I was being taken to task because I hadn't appointed anyone to introduce me (laughs) I said it's okay I'll do it they said oh yeah that's a cop out no but I will Um, I'm Michael Uh, I'm a Mancunian which means I'm from Macclesfield Um, (laughs) Manchester I'm a Maxonian which means I've lived and I now work in Macclesfield Uh, I'm a Morris man Um, And I'm a family man, particularly today. Today isn't just the day of my theme talk at this year's summer school. Today is due day for my daughter. No, it hasn't happened. (laughs) In fact, just before we started, I did check in to see. And here is the latest bulletin. Okay, still fed up, still hurting, we'll get there. But she did put a smiley face afterwards. That's all right. So that's, that's that. Uh, I'm also a fan... Oh, so if, if, if that buzzes later on and you see me white-faced going slightly more quickly out of the door, you'll know why. 
But yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a husband very, very happily. I'm a father and a grandfather very, very happily. Um, I'm also a son. Uh, and I need to let you know that my, my dad, he's, he's kind of almost relevant to what we're thinking about this week. He's a very isolate person. He's not really plumbed <coughs> the depths of his authentic self and let the beast out. He sits at home and he will say, do you know I hate people? Uh, I actually hate being visited. I hate visiting. Leave me alone. And then he'll say, do you know I've not spoken to a living soul for days? <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's past 85, his vision is bad, his hearing is bad, his mobility is okay, and he's, he's living independently. That's great. So clearly, I'm lucky enough to be inside his bubble. I get to see him, I get to visit him, I get to help him. And tomorrow, he is having laser treatment on his eyes. He's had um, pigmentary glaucoma for a long, long time, and the pressure has got very high again and needs to be cut down. His plan will be to phone a taxi, go on his own, get back in the taxi, go home on his own. And I said, that's not happening. So tomorrow, I shall be going to do that with him. That's my apology to you. It's my choice. I'm a family man. Uh, so I'll be here till just before lunchtime. If during the afternoon any of you really would love to speak to someone in a ministry capacity, a pastoral capacity, Lindy has very kindly offered to be a pair of ears and eyes and arms for me. Okay, so look out for that. I'll be back for evening meal and we'll go on just the same. Right, that's my apology over. That's my introduction of me. Um, kind of an insight as well into the way life stacks up for me. Uh, here's a quote to bring us into what we're thinking about. Uh, it's by David Aronovich, and it was in the Times. If it's them, we feel we should know about it, because that's transparency. But if it's us, we feel we should have the right to stop them finding out about it. That's privacy. My whole presentation this morning... Um, is intended to present the thinking of Parker J. Palmer. And if it's all very familiar to you and old hat already, I apologise, but that's what I'm doing. Uh, regarding, he's, he's the founder and the director of the Centre for Courage and Renewal. Uh, and his focus, his concern that I'm bringing to you today is the danger of living a divided life. I'm not going to look at the methodology used by the Centre... I'm going to look at the perception and the diagnosis, if you will, which inspires and fuels the centre's mission. The intention in all their work is to encourage and enable people to reunite soul and role. So what I'm going to do this morning, what I'm going to say and show and explore with you, draws extensively on the contents, contents of this book, A Hidden Wholeness, The Journey Toward an Undivided Life. Okay. Now this probably has happened to loads of you, it never happened to me before. Um, I got this book and I spent some time with it, quite a lot of time with it, and after a few months, um, Amazon got back in touch, sent me an email, and I thought they were telling me just how very popular the book was, because it, it seemed to say, here's news about trading of this book. And actually what it was saying, you've got this book, do you want to trade it back in? Trade in your book? We'll buy it back from you, because there's such a demand for it. I was quite surprised. As I say, it's probably happened to all of you, but it's never happened to me before, and it hasn't since. So someone else thinks it's okay. So I hope you do. <clears throat> Leonard Cohen wrote these words, The blizzard of the world has crossed the threshold, and it has overturned the order of the soul. There was a time, says Parker J. Palmer, and gradually I'll start just saying PJP if that's okay. 
Parker J. Palmer, PJP. There was a time, he says, when the farmers on the great plains of America would, at the first sign of a blizzard, attach a rope to the back door of the farm and run it across the yard to the barn. They all knew stories of people who'd wandered off and been frozen to death, having lost sight of home in the whiteout, that's snow to us, while still in their own backyard. Today we live in a blizzard of another sort. It swirls around us as economic injustice, ecological ruin, physical and spiritual violence and their inevitable outcomes, war. It swirls within us as fear and frenzy, greed and deceit and indifference to the sufferings of others. We all know stories of those who have wandered off into this madness and been separated from their own souls, losing their moral bearings and even their mortal lives. Some make headlines because they take so many innocents down with them. The lost ones come from every walk of life, clergy and corporate executives, politicians and people on the street, celebrities and schoolchildren. Some of us fear that we, or those we love, will become lost in the storm. Some are lost this very moment, trying to find their way home. Some are lost without even knowing it yet. And some are using the blizzard as cover while cynically exploiting its chaos for private gain. So it is easy to believe the poet's claim that the blizzard of the world has overturned the order of the soul. Easy to believe that the soul, that life-giving core of the human self, with its hunger for truth and justice, love and forgiveness, the soul has lost all power to guide our lives. But, says PJP, my own experience of the blizzard, which includes getting lost in it more often than I like to admit, tells me that this is not so. The soul's order can never be destroyed. It may be obscured by the whiteout. We may forget or deny that its guidance is close at hand, and yet we are still in the soul's backyard, with chance after chance to seize the rope to regain our bearings. And this book, his work, is about tying that rope from the back door to the barn so that we can find our way home again. When we catch sight of the soul, we can survive the blizzard without losing our hope or our way. When we catch sight of the soul, we can become healers in a wounded world. In the family, in the neighbourhood, in the workplace and in political life. And I would very definitely include the need to work as healers in our congregations and our spiritual communities. Yes, we can become healers in all manner of wounded settings as we are called back to our hidden wholeness amid the violence of the storm. That's how he sets the book up. That's the prelude that kind of says, you want to know more? Come with me. Thomas Merton claimed that there is in all things a hidden wholeness. And Douglas Wood wrote the meditation that's on your sheet, I think. Maybe not, maybe not. I'll read it to you. You look at the picture. Jack Pines, that's the picture. Jack Pines are not lumber trees. They won't win many beauty contests either. But to me, this valiant old tree, solitary on its own rocky point, is as beautiful as a living thing can be. 
in the calligraphy of its shape against the sky is written strength of character and perseverance, survival of wind, drought, cold, heat, disease. In its silence, it speaks of wholeness, of an integrity that comes from being what you are. But I hope you've enjoyed that talk. <laughs> A jack pine, solitary on its rocky point, one of the loveliest sights I know, says Parker J. Palmer. <laughs> But lovelier still is the sight of a man or woman standing with integrity intact. Can you name some to yourselves? A man or woman, you know, when you see someone with integrity intact, you know, you feel it, you're moved and touched by it. Can we name any? Aloud? Think of people who seem just right, just there. See them then in your mind's eye. See those people, feel that integrity, and you catch a glimpse of the beauty that arises when people refuse to live undivided, refuse to live divided lives and choose to live undividedly. Now, of course, wholeness comes a bit more easily to Jack Pines than it does to human beings. Pinus Banksiana is incapable of thinking itself into trouble. We are cursed with the blessing of consciousness and choice. A two-edged sword that both divides us and can help us become whole if we use it and choose it. Out there with Jack Pine, says PJP, I sense the wholeness hidden in all things. It is in the taste of wild berries, the scent of sun-baked pine... The sight of the northern lights, the sound of water lapping. Signs of a bedrock integrity that is eternal and beyond all doubt. Then I return to a human world that is transient and riddled with disbelief. But I have new eyes for the wholeness hidden in me and my kind. And a new heart for loving even our imperfections. That eternal integrity, that hidden wholeness. PJP's starting point is the notion that all of us arrive on earth with souls in perfect form. Do we? Do we accept this, I wonder? And as a short excursion, that's where he begins, so I'll leave him there. Short excursion about this authentic self, this eternal integrity. Is it a soul that's given? There are two streams, he tells us, in our culture that raise a fundamental doubt as to the nature, even the existence of a true self. So perhaps we're wasting our time. Secularism holds that we arrive in the world not as unique individuals, but as malleable, raw material, which then receives the imprint of gender, class and race that we're born into. We have an inherited nature, of course, a set of potentials and limits received as a result of our role of the genetic dice... But from a secular standpoint, it is nonsense to believe that we're born with an inviolable soul, an ontological identity, a core of selfhood. Ooh. On the other hand, moralism wishes us to banish the word self from our vocabulary altogether. Self equates, they say, with selfishness. 
The whole problem with our society, the moralists claim, is that too many people are out for themselves at the expense of everyone else. This New Age emphasis on self-fulfilment, this cult of me, is the root cause of the fragmentation of community that we see all around us. Hmm. Challenging stuff. But surely we would say community hasn't vanished. What are we doing this week? What are we doing in our congregations and in other communities we have chosen to be part of? Surely a strong community helps people to recognise, remember and develop a sense of true selfhood. Only in community can the self exercise and fulfil its nature, giving and taking, listening and speaking, being and doing. The secularist suggests that there isn't an authentic self, but in community we're able to identify and celebrate the selfhood of one another, aren't we? When things fall apart for some we know, we lament, oh no, that's not like him. She's just not herself right now. Or when things come together for them, we exult. Oh, isn't that just her? He's really coming to his own now. A sense of recognition of what's true. The moralist sees individualism as the cause of decline of community, but PJP sees an opposite dynamic. As community is torn apart by various political and economic forces, more and more people suffer from a sense of emptiness. Empty self syndrome. Who am I then? What am I then? What impact, what effect can I have then? Bless you. Welcome. When community unravels and we lack opportunities to be ourselves in a web of relationships, not only do we lose touch with one another, but with our sense of self, that sense indeed atrophies and we lose that sense. So I come back to PJP's words from a little earlier, and then I return to a human world that is transient and riddled with disbelief, but I have new eyes for the wholeness hidden in me and in my kind, and a new heart for loving even our imperfections. So let the secularist and the moralist have their say, and let us assert community, and let us assert a conviction. Surely we are called to be the kind of compassionate people, the kind of healers, the kind of community, healing both self and one another that are so badly needed in this wounded world. We can bear witness to the authentic self in the face of the arguments. If we are willing to accept the notion. You may be sitting there all through this week thinking, but there isn't a true self. There isn't an authentic self. In which case, I hope you're enjoying it. But if we're willing to accept the notion, the soul perhaps, let's look at Palmer's concern about people becoming separated from their own soul and living that divided life that he is so focused on. Back in this human world where we are less self-revealing than Jack Pines out in their wilderness, Merton's words can indeed sound like wishful thinking, that there is in everything a hidden wholeness. Afraid that our inner light will be extinguished or our inner darkness exposed, we hide our true identities from each other. We create boundaries and separations which lead to us living divided lives. 
PJP's knowledge of the divided life comes first from personal experience. I yearn to be whole, he says, but dividedness often seems the easier choice. A still, small voice does speak the truth about me, about my work, about the world. I hear it and then act as if I haven't. Then I withhold, perhaps, a personal gift that might serve a good end, or I commit myself to a project I don't really believe in. I keep silent on an issue I should address, or I actively break faith with one of my own convictions. I try to deny my inner darkness, thereby giving it more power over me, or I project it onto other people, creating what I perceive to be enemies where none actually exist. I pay a steep price for living in this fractured way. I feel fraudulent, anxious about being found out, depressed by the fact that I'm denying my own selfhood. And the people around me pay a price as well. For now they are on ground made unstable by my dividedness. How can I affirm someone else's identity when I deny my own? How can I trust someone else's integrity when I defy my own? So a fault line runs down the middle of my life and whenever it cracks open, exposing the divorce between my actual living and the truth that I hold, things around me get shaky and start to fall apart. That's his diagnosis. Pretty dire stuff. So by what process does he draw this happening? By what narrative does he show the process taking place? All of us arrive on earth with souls in perfect form. True self, the soul, the starting point. How can we see it? Where can we see it? How can we know it and bring ourselves back to it? A bit like we did last night with Claire. He says, when true self is the topic, then children are the best source. Because they live so close to their innate gifts. When my first grandchild was born... I'll just check the phone. (laughs) When my first grandchild was born, I saw something in her that I'd missed in my own children. I found this interesting. Missed in my own children some 25 years earlier, when I was too young and self-absorbed to see anyone, including myself, very well. In my granddaughter, what I saw was clear and simple. She had arrived on earth as this kind of person. Not that. Not that. Not that over there. This. In my granddaughter, I actually observed something I could once only take on faith, that we are born with a seed of selfhood that contains the spiritual DNA of our uniqueness, an encoded birthright knowledge of who we are, why we're here, how we are related to others. Now, we may abandon that knowledge, but it never abandons us. Isn't it fascinating that the very old, who often forget a great deal may recover vivid memories of childhood, that time in their lives when they were most like themselves. They're brought back to their birthright nature by the abiding core of selfhood they carry within, a core made visible, perhaps, by the way ageing can strip away whatever's not truly of us after all. That core. Philosophers haggle over what to call the core. True self... Buddhists call it original original nature or big self. Quakers call it the inner teacher or the inner light. Hasidic Jews call it spark of the divine. Humanists call it identity and integrity. 
In popular parlance, people often call it soul. But he says, what we name it matters little to me. Since the origins, the nature, the destiny of call it what you will are forever hidden from us. And no one can credibly claim to know its true name. But that we name it matters a great deal. For it is the objective, ontological reality of selfhood that keeps us from reducing ourselves or each other to biological mechanisms, to psychological projections, to sociological constructs, or to raw material to be manufactured into just whatever society needs right now. Diminishing our humanity in a way that constantly threatens the quality of our lives. That's the self that he sees in his granddaughter, in the simplicity and directness and focus of a child. When true self is the topic, children are the best source. And we've sent them away. (laughs) What shall we do? Well, let's turn to all the children still in the room, residing in each one of us. I'm going to ask you to think for a couple of moments in such a way as to access, to remember, to tap into the spiritual DNA that Palmer talked about. The simple, core, untainted person you were born as and still are at heart. You know. And if childhood maybe isn't the access for you, because it may not be for all, please allow yourself simply to recall a time and place whenever and wherever of simple, complete happiness. It may well be childhood. Our workshop last night did just that. This is where we play. Play may be not it for you, but it may be. However you access it, please think of something unalloyed and uncomplicated (coughs) that's you, some time, some place, something... Be there, touch that direct core of selfhood. Simple, complete happiness. Let it just spring to mind. Don't force it. Let it be there. Something that essentially, as you touch it, remember it, taste it, smell it, as you're in it, leaves you thinking and feeling, oh yes. Oh yes, that's right. Oh yes, that was me. That is me. Just as a sideline on that, I was listening, this is for Rob really, I was listening to Radio 5 the other day, uh, listening to Danny Baker, and he's, he, don't worry, you don't have to know. <laughs> Talk show, and he was starting the programme off by inviting people to send in memories of childhood. And the presenters were talking between themselves about how many children had a bed with a den underneath it. You know, kind of the bunk set it with a little desk under there. Or if they didn't have it that made, they, they made it such, they crawled under, they made some kind. And Danny just said, look, oh God, I really want to get back under the bed. <laughs> Gotcha, that's it. Now, what I would like you to do is, when you're ready, gently turn to your neighbour, maybe threes if you need to, and just swap those thoughts. Just talk about them for a moment. Okay? When you're ready, turn gently and say, do you know where I was? Do you know how it felt? 
just have that conversation for a while when you're ready. Just three or four minutes, don't worry, and I'll remind you. Thank you. And you're still smiling for the main part. That's lovely. Good. Very simple thing now. You've all got a slip of paper. And I did say, please have something to write with. So I hope you have. On the white side, that's not the coloured side. <laughs> On the white side. Ah, have you got... That's very odd. Can you make sure Ned's got a coloured one? Thank you. How did that get in there? On the white side, please write down just a key word or two about memory, place, what you just talked about. Just enough to trigger the memory. Something about, some detail that just triggers it and a feeling. Just write that on the white side, please. Sorry, just repeat that. Write down something which will trigger the memory that you've just talked about, like name the place or the time or a person or whatever, and the feeling it engenders in you. Not an essay, just very key words. Identify the memory, identify the feeling it engenders, so you can remember the detail and the experience. Okay, that's nice and short and sharp and simple, I hope. It might just be two words and that's brilliant. Okay, I'm going to ask you to think quietly again. And this is, this is only quietly and thinking for yourself. This time not about an event in your life, not tracking back or getting to the heart of you. But who are you inside? Some kind of attribute or characteristic that others have seen in you that you actually accept is true. No matter how abashed or embarrassed you might feel in owning it. Perhaps someone saying to you, you know, I really value this about you. Or I always know that you'll be... You're just so... Thank you for being. Or if that's just a bit too vague, then go back to the back page exercise from Jane's booklet. The virtues that she asked you, she asked you to bid yourself up. It's kind of countercultural for us, and I'm glad she did. So, something you know because it's been identified. Something you secretly know is great about you. You can own that, or something that you would identify from the values that you were given, and then write one or two or fifteen of them. One or two. Again on the white side of the sheet, the strip, not. (laughs) (laughs) When I want you to turn to the coloured side, guess what? I'll ask you to turn to the coloured side. Just writing down something that you can own that's positive attribute. Good luck with those pens. I keep trying.
Okay. We're doing a fairly simple way of, of um, shortening his process. What he's trying to create here is an image of your inner life, your core self. So we've looked at something that will take you back to that place of spiritual DNA that he called it. We're also capturing something that is of you, of the essence of you that you're happy to be with positive attribute value whatever so this strip of paper now the white side represents the life you know the person you know it's before your eyes that's your inner self according to pjp symbolically there's a lot more we could put in there but we're trying to find what's true of you we're trying to depict the authentic self person we know to be at heart so that's stage one of the process that's where we begin, that's where we are at root. All of us arrive on earth with souls in perfect form. But from the moment of birth, he says, the soul or true self is assailed by deforming forces from without and from within, by racism, sexism, <coughs> economic injustice and other social ecological cancers, by jealousy, resentment, self-doubt, fear and other demons of the inner life. Parker remembers, I was blessed with a family where it felt safe to be myself. But I didn't feel so safe at school, where I played the role of a successful and popular student. But in truth, that person felt fraudulent to me. While I played that on-stage part, my true self hid out backstage, fearful that someone might see behind the curtain and see who I really was. Fearful that the world would mock and crush my deepest values and beliefs, my fragile hopes and yearnings. Now that's not to say that home and family is necessarily a context where the true self feels safe. Safe enough to be completely itself, without need to adopt external roles. I recently read an intriguing novel, this is me now. I recently read an intriguing novel called The Last Days of California by Mary Miller in which a family is making a journey across the US to be present for the rapture, the end of days, which has been predicted to take place on a certain date in California. Off they go, driving state after state, handing out tracts whenever they can. The journey, though, is recounted through the eyes of the younger of two teenage daughters. So you can begin to see she may not be totally on board with all of this. But there you go. I'm not going to go through the novel. However, one insight. The younger girl is at table with her parents, having recently sneaked, or is that snuck, a couple of illicit alcoholic beverages egged on by her older sister, and she's desperate not to be found out. I avoided my mother's eyes. She would be angry and disappointed if she found out what I'd done, and I didn't want her to look at me differently. If I wasn't the good daughter, I wouldn't know who I was. I wasn't popular or a cheerleader or a straight-A student. I wasn't on the dance team. I wasn't a member of the student council or even the key club. What on earth is a key club, Nancy? I have no idea. Thank you. <laughs> Leadership. Leadership. Thank you. There were so many things I wasn't 
that I had difficulty defining myself, especially in relation to my sister, who was so many things. So let's not just assume that family is an okay place and it's all hunky-dory, because it's not a lot of the time. So this thing about the inner and the outer, the sense of protection, can happen all over the place. We develop outer clothing, if you like, ways of being seen by others so that we all feel accepted and valued, ways of being seen which will deflect the observer from seeing within to that true and vulnerable self. Let's look at the coloured side for a moment. See how it's brightness. I chose the colours deliberately, okay? See how its brightness tends to overwhelm and take the attention away from the simple white of the reverse. This represents our outer life as opposed to the inner life. What Palmer refers to as the onstage rather than the backstage. As you look at the coloured side, rather more suited to display than the plain white, can you identify, can you name any roles, any behaviours that you know that you have adopted or have been assigned, and perhaps still do, or still are assigned, so that you are perceived as valid, as real, as welcome in this world. And as you think of those, if you want to write any of them on, you can, but you don't have to. You might want to just think it. This is your outer, your shell, your presented life, the masks. Can you name... Can you identify roles, behaviours, the outer you? Please be aware, I haven't made any judgment. I've not said to you, oh, these are all bad things, okay? We haven't done that. It's just identifying the fact we do create a visible outer persona. And we're just hinting at what it's like. Okay, I'm going to wander on. And I was not going to ask you to talk about those. At first... Palmer tells us this is, of course, good news. This is functional behaviour. We need outer clothing if we are to venture outdoors, most of us. We need outer clothing in the world if we are to discover our abilities to interact with others and with our surroundings, if we are to evolve purposeful and worthwhile activity in the external world. And it is the soul, the core self, which actually animates those outer behaviours. As it animated the inner life, the secret lives, the, 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 the mystery friends, the invisible friends, the games that we played as children. The soul animating the way in which we function in and out. The soul animates the roles we adopt or invent in order to be accepted in an effort to shield our vulnerable soft selfhood from the threats of the world. At first. But we can see that as the outer world becomes more and more demanding... This gentle and self-preserving feature emerging from childhood 
gradually erodes to be replaced by an adult pathology if we're not careful. Palmer acknowledges, my outer behaviours became not so much a curtain as a wall. A wall to hide behind and a wall behind which to protect my vulnerabilities from the assaults of the world. Palmer talks of his need to reinforce the wall in later education. In graduate school, he says, especially there, my emotional and spiritual survival seemed to depend upon keeping my truth tucked away. When I did my doctoral work in the sociology of religion, I was, as I still am, a person of religious convictions. He is an active and proudly active Quaker. I didn't expect my professors to share my religious beliefs, or even to hold any beliefs that might be called religious, but I did assume that they would give religious phenomena the same kind of scholarly respect that historians give to primary texts or geneticists give to DNA. But I soon learned that such was not always the case. Some sociologists of religion are driven by a desire to debunk all things religious. And intimidated by professors who took this approach, I did my best through graduate school to keep my beliefs undercover. All the while, I do confess, taking secret solace from Auden's witty 11th commandment, thou shalt not commit a social science. (laughs) At first then, a wall is needed, perhaps, to hide our vulnerabilities from the assault of the world. But selfhood hidden from strangers can become hidden from intimates as well. The wall built to protect ourselves at work can become harder to dismantle in the company of family and of friends. We can begin, without even knowing it, to keep true self partitioned off in our personal lives as well as our outer life. It becomes the habit. It was appropriate at first. We can lose sight of the appropriate limit of it. So here, according to PJP, is the ultimate irony of the divided life. Live behind a wall long enough... And the true self you try to hide from the world disappears from your own view as well. The wall itself and the outside world become all that you know. Eventually, you even forget that the wall is there and that hidden behind it is someone called you. He says, living behind such a wall as this has three consequences. Way more probably, but at least these three. First, the inner light from our core self, cannot illuminate the work we do in the world it can't get through. Our inner darkness cannot be illuminated by the light of the world it can't get through. Indeed, gradually we become convinced that there just isn't any light out there. It's all darkness. And thirdly, people close to us become wary of the gap between our onstage and our backstage of our inner and our outer. And as distrust grows, they don't know where they are with us. They keep us at arm's length and we lose the very relationships which could keep us open. That's life behind the wall. Let's take a break for a poem. Surprisingly appropriate poem. Who'd have thought I chose it? (laughs) Nancy's going to read Robert Frost's Mending Wall I'm always so honored when Michael asks me to read, until I remember he only asked me to read American poems. 
<laughs> Two things I just want to let you just remind you of. In New England, the stone walls are much lower, and there are much bigger granite boulders often, with mixed sizes, but many huge boulders. Um, and because it's so much colder there, the ground freezes four feet down, and it used to. And um, that means that uh, those stone walls you see maybe this high up from the ground are four feet down if they're to not be juggled around because the frost heaves of frozen ground that deep juggle everything around. Um, And most walls are not dug that far, so in the spring the, the rocks are tumbled and spilled over. Mending wall. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I have gone after them and made repair where they have left not one stone on a stone, but they would have the rabbit out of hiding to please the yelping dogs. The gaps I mean... No one has seen them made or heard them made, but at spring mending time we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk along the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go. To each the boulders that have fallen to each. And some are loaves and some so nearly balls we have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are until our backs are turned. (laughs) We wear our fingers rough with handling them. Oh, just another kind of outdoor game, one on a side. It comes to little more. There where it is, we, we do not need the wall. He is all pine and I am apple orchard. My apples will never get across and eat the cones underneath, <laughs> under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me, and I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I could say elves to him, (laughs) but it's not elves exactly, and I'd rather he said it for himself. I see him there bringing a stone grasped firmly at the top in each hand, like an old stone savage armed. He moves in darkness, as it seems to me, not of woods and the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well, he says again, good fences make good neighbors. So, to wall or not to wall appears to be the question. And don't we love polarities? 
Perhaps the easy answer would be just to tear it down, rip it up, dispense with any differentiation between the inner and the outer clothings. Go commando, let it all hang out. <laughs> Perhaps the answer is to set about reordering, reshaping our outer onstage lives around our inner backstage living. The virtues, the values. I want my inner truth to be the focus from which flows all the choice I make about my living, about the work that I do, how I do it, about my relationships and how I conduct them. And we can persuade ourselves, sincerely believe, that what we're doing here is a spiritual process, a laudable phase in our personal growth journey. We can perceive it as seeking to be cloaked in our inner life, to be centred in our truth, Centred being one of the most frequently occurring words in the spiritual literature of recent decades. And the desire to be centred is a step towards integrity, of course, but as you can see, it has a shadow side. Hold the strip closed as a ring and you will see that getting centred can also be described as getting the wagons in a circle, moving into a gated community, joining an exclusive, perhaps triumphalist religious group, shut off from the world. Whatever the rationale, self-definition, self-preservation, spiritual self-nurture and exclusivism, shutting ourselves in an away like this has a negative consequence, indeed two. First, we fall short of the open-hearted engagement with the world that all the great spiritual traditions advise and we deny ourselves the possibility of being integrated human beings. We set up a division, inside and outside, that militates against the joy and the peace of wholeness. How did Abby get your number? All those great traditions, spiritual traditions, want to awaken us to the fact that we are here to co-create the reality in which we live. And they ask us two basic questions about our living. First, what are we sending from within ourselves out into the world and what effect is it having? Well, how can that happen if we're walled off, circled in? Second, what is the world sending back at us and what impact is it having in here? How can that happen? How can we answer those questions if we are carefully, sensibly, hermetically sealed off? So there is no congress or communication between out there and in here. In the solution, if this is the solution to demolish the wall, tear down the curtain, the boundary between inner truth and outer reality, no it is not, says Parker J. Palmer. And here is the twist to this morning's talk. Take the strip, give it a half twist and hold it together. Do that, hold it together. See it and try that if you run your finger along the surface of the strip, keep going, you will find that it passes along all of the surface of the strip, both what was inside and what was outside. The bright side and the white side are no longer separate entities. They're no longer alternative realities. They're now connected, indeed, in a sense, flow into one another. But you can't do it properly like that, John. Hold it together. So I'm going to send some sticky bits around for you so that you can actually stick them together. And then, as they reach you, I'm going to have some music on for a minute. 
I invite you just to run it between thumb and forefinger. Once you've got the twisted strip stuck, run it between thumb and forefinger and notice how both thumb and forefinger have just as much contact with what were the two sides of the paper. You never have to let go of either to be in touch with both. Start a tune, bring some stickies, and you can stick it together. So you just give the strip a half twist and then stick it. I'm going to pause that there uh, and invite you to take the strips away and play with that again later if you want to. Uh, I've got some more stickies, still some more strips. The point was to, to make the point. Now you have continuity between on stage and backstage, between the protected and the projected. And this is the vital message to us today. This, what strip's it called? Mobius Dickus. The Mobius strip reminds us that Whatever is inside us continually flows outward. Mobius. Whatever's inside us continually flows outward to help form or deform the world in which we live. Whatever is outside us continually flows inward to help form or deform our lives. In other words, both the inner and the outer realities of ourselves are essential components in our living. That's full authenticity. A balanced relationship of action and reflection. 
a mature expression of integration. We're going to sing an hymn <coughs> that picks up this notion of for those for whom it worked revisiting childhood completing the connection with the core self that DNA and reminding ourselves it's still there and keeping that relationship constant in the experience of adulthood so that the inner and the outer like the Mobius strip flow together in a dynamic energy so we're going to sing the hymn that's on your sheet it's a tune that you will know and I'm sure that you'll enjoy it So please do. community in Macclesfield, um, in our conversations, in our group work particularly, we're finding that we come back increasingly to saying about whatever the proposition or challenge may be, it's not either or, it's both and. And I suggest that's what this talk boils down to. I suggest that what, that's what Parker 
Palmer's diagnosis boils down to. It's not either or, it's both and. It's not either inner or projected self, it's not inner or outer, it's both realities, interwoven and interweaving with us doing the weaving. Without let, without hindrance, without complication. The object of us, says Ralph Waldo Emerson, is to make daylight shine through us. To suffer the light of nature to traverse our whole being without obstruction. So that on what point soever of our doing that light falls, it shall report truly of your character. Whether it be your diet, your house, your religious forms, your society, your mirth, your vote, your opposition, it shall speak your truth to the beholder. While ever we are not homogeneous but heterogeneous, while ever we are divided, not undivided, and the ray does not traverse, then there is no through light. The eye of the beholder is puzzled, detecting many unlike tendencies and a life not yet at one, a life not yet authentic. See you at 4.30 if you want to be there. Coffee time.